This is SciBite, episode 109, for November 12th, 2013. Hi, everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at counting Earth-like planets, what musical training does for your brain, the Olympic torch, viewer feedback about sharks, spacecraft update on India's Mars orbiter mission, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back in history and up in the sky this week. Wow, Heather, that is so much science, we might have to apply a little bit of quantum compression, so let's kick it off with the news. All right, what is our first story? All right, astronomers have analyzed all four years of the Kepler data. The Kepler telescope is no longer working, per se, for this uh, planet data, but they've still got years and all this data. So some some group went back, analyzed four years of it in search of Earth-sized planets in all the habitable zones of sun-like stars. So a couple of caveats there. So, But based on the analysis, they estimate that 22% of the stars that are like the sun have potentially habitable Earth-like planets. Hmm. Whoa. Now, they may not be rocky, they may not have liquid, but they're, they kind of label it as between four times and one quarter of the amount of light that Earth receives, um, you know, between, you know, a certain percentage of their size and then like in the proper orbit. Now, some of those may have thick atmospheres, so it's too hot the surface, so the, you know, DNA molecules couldn't survive. But, you know, is looking at these and saying, all right, well, from all this data, what do we think? So they focused on 42,000 stars that they called sun-like. And 603 of those had planets. So they went down, they said, all right, how many were earth size, which were one to two times the diameter of the Earth, where they're you know, orbiting in the star so that t- uh, water could be liquid on the surface, should there be water there. So all of these are rotating around what they call K-type stars, which are cooler and slightly smaller than our sun, but the results kind of show that they have, they're very sim- similar enough that um, all the data they have from that can also be kind of used for G-type stars, which are like our sun. Hmm. So all kind of, kind of in the same group. So they went through and they went, all right, this is the number of Earth-like, Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone that we see. Now you have to do some fuzzy math and go, okay, well... We know that Kepler probably missed some of the planets. They're not going to catch them all. Yeah. Plus, you know, you have to have three consecutive orbits that you see. If they were really, you know, slow orbits, then may not get them. And also, in order to see them, it had to be a dip in front of the sun. So literally, we had to be staring at the plane. There are plenty of, you know, planets that would be orbiting in a different direction, so we wouldn't see it pass in front of the star. Or would pass over, you know, just one edge. You know, so it's all sorts of different directions that we wouldn't see it pass in front of. 
So they went, all right, well, let's kind of fuzzy math it and say, all right, we're going to guess that, you know, this, uh, this amount of other planets are actually there per, you know, the ones we see. So from that, they got the 22% of all sun-like stars, air quotes. And that's, so that's, but that's sort of the big pull quote, right, is 22% of stars that are like our sun have potentially yeah. habitable Earth-sized planets orbiting them, potentially. Yes. Now, a couple of the things I saw with the giant headlines, 22% of stars have habitable <laughs> planets. Oh. No, 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 no. It's a very simple, it's a very caveat. It's okay. So it's 22% of sun-like stars. So stars like our sun. Now, those type of stars make up about a little less than 20% of all stars. Hmm. But you know. So if you get that percentage of that, you get 4% of all stars that have potentially okay. habitable Earth-sized planets. Now, 4% of all stars. But if you think about it, that's 1 out of 25. Look up in the sky, count 25 stars that you see. One of them probably has a Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone. So what you're saying is aliens. No. You're saying aliens is what you're saying. I didn't say that. Oh, okay. Aliens. Caveat. Oh. This, this one, you know, the big giant fireworks that they bring everyone in for and then they don't read the byline that said and i i was so i laughed at that so much because it was a headline 22 percent of all stars i'm like no not quite good try though yeah thumbs up yeah thumbs sideways not so good all right heather well any other thoughts on that particular story no, I think it's just kind of exciting, and we'll see how much more the Kepler data brings us. And, you know, I'll be counting all 20, one of every 25 stars. I'm going to be doing that from now on. You've, you've sort of like, that'll be a new thing. Like one, two, yeah, okay, there's a, aliens. All right, Heather, well, why don't we take a quick break right there. Uh, every week, uh, we, make a, we make a pick here on the SciBite Show, and these picks are uh, from usually Amazon because we have an affiliate deal set up with Amazon. So if you buy our pick, you get yourself something, and you're also helping out the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. And this week, Heather has picked one of the, I mean, this is, this is like one of my must purchase. Uh, and it's, it's, these, it's these Blu-ray releases of Star Trek The Next Generation. This week, it's season five. It's coming out on November 19th. So you got a little bit of time to pre-order if you're listening to this show kind of current. And season five, I was killing time on the pre-show with Heather. We were talking about some of my favorite episodes from season five of Star Trek The Next Generation. And one of them is the cause and effect episode where it starts with the Enterprise being destroyed uh, after colliding with another starship, which I don't know if I should spoil who the captain of that starship is. But if you know what episode I'm talking about, you remember who the captain of that starship is, somebody pretty famous. And uh, and then uh, it's sort of a groundhog's effect where it goes on. And I, also, this season is uh, where uh, Inner Light, which is a lot of people consider one of the greatest uh, Star Trek The Next Generation episodes ever, um, and, uh, I guess this is the, uh, season, I don't, I don't even remember the finale, but rumor has it, it's the finale where, uh, Data goes back in time and his head falls off. And, uh, yes. that's actually a pretty good, that's a pretty good cliffhanger. So, uh, we will have a link to Star Trek season five, Star Trek the next generation season five in the show notes. When you click that link, it'll automatically tag your shopping session. Boom, like that. So you don't have to worry about it. And the other nice thing about using that link in the show notes is we have a little bit of magic code. Uh, I believe they call it JavaScript, that automatically detects where you're located at. So if you're coming from a different country, it'll automatically take it with your country code too, so you don't have to worry about that. You can also grab our browser extensions, which we have linked at the bottom of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. But Heather, with that filed, I believe it's time for the News Bite. 
What are we talking about in the news bite? All right. Older adults who actually took music lessons as, a, as children but haven't actually played recently still have a faster brain response to speech sounds than individuals who have never played an instrument. Okay. All right. I can so, see it. So the brain, the brain has like some pathways that it, it formed from a long time ago, right? Huh? Yes. <laughs> so these, your, your hearing going to uh, fast changing sounds, that's which in, is important for interpreting speech. Now there have been studies before that show that there is some age related decline, which not necessarily completely, you know, they're not inevitable. It's just that there is, you know, various things that could offset it. And there are studies that say that musicians might have, uh, they've done a study where lifelong musicians have, it could offset that. But now they're actually looking at training early in life. They took, you know, uh, 44 adults, 55 to 76 years old, and they listened to synthesized speech syllable, da. But, so then they wired them up and they were trying to see how fast the brain responded to such things. They're looking in the, the brainstem, which is the where it processes sound and kind of the cognitive sensory information place. Hmm. So the, the results show that now the more years uh, you spend playing an instrument in youth, the faster it will respond to speech. But none of the people in this study had actually played an instrument for 40 years. So it wasn't necessarily that it was a recent thing or your brain had to be doing it right then. Okay. So they'd comp- I mean, they'd practice for four to 14 years of music early in life. And it was making things milliseconds faster. Now, milliseconds doesn't sound like much, but as oh, things, yeah, as it rolls <laughs> into your brain, then timing and, you know, over compounded over millions and millions of, you know, neurons and how fast your brain, you know, goes along the line of neurons, then it starts to add up. So, uh, Sukarambu, I think, from the chat room said, is it music in general or instruments? I'm not sure they specifically said instruments, but uh, the instrument I played was the vocal cords. So, I, I did a lot of things, so I would think that it would be similar. That is that is an interesting question, I bet, right? It's it's Because it's just... still... It's still reading the music, knowing yeah. the notes. Right. That's, um, yeah. the, the instrument would add uh, finger, you know, where you'd have to know finger placement for all the various instruments. But yeah, who knows? Maybe the way you interact with it reinforces a, a certain pathway that retains longer. I mean, boy, that's, that's now I'm sounding crazy. I don't know. I'm sounding crazy, Heather. No, I've seen that before, too. All right. Well, now, where, I, don't, now I don't feel so crazy. No? I know some sign language. If I need to remember something, I'll sign out the name or sign out something, and it helps remember. That is interesting, huh? And, uh, you know, all our kids so far, two out of three, um, learned a little bit of sign language before they were talking, right? And I think they awesome. still know it. So I haven't asked them for a while, but last time we checked, they seem to still know it. It seems to stick. All right, well, why don't I pull the band in, and we'll do the news. Wait, not that. No, not that. The two-byte band. Get Music. out of here. Memory. Get we were just talking fire. about this. I know. Okay, so I didn't need a band. I got it right there. You and I, we got there you this. Go. We got yeah. this. 
All right, Heather. So uh, what are we talking about? All right. The Olympic torch was originally taken to space. Well, on a space walk for the first time on November 9th. Okay. Yeah. I heard about this. Yes. How can you have fire in space, Heather? No fire. Ah. Unlit. Complete time. Obviously, safety reasons. Fire out in space during the spacewalk in a vacuum. No oxygen. Kind of hard. Not going to happen. And in the space station or in the capsule, fire is not such a good thing either. I was wondering about that, too. So is this um, uh, is this a gimmick, Heather? <laughs> well, why you gotta, been, why you got to take the torch up into space if you don't have the torch? It's lit? been it's been carried into space before it was before oh, okay. the 96 and the 2000 oh, okay. Olympics okay. in Atlanta and Sydney. Okay. But it never been necessarily outside the space station or space shuttle on a spacewalk. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm not going to lie. If you come to me and say, "Hey, would you like me to take something into space?" I'm probably going to say yes to that. Yeah, probably. I might say yes to that too. Now, of course it's kind of gimmicky. You know, you give it to them and yeah. this is one of those times where it was very easy to rotate it around because there was a crew going up and then a crew coming back within a week or two of each other. So for a short time there, there was nine people on the space station. Usually it's just six. So, But they actually had a, an overlap there. So now they didn't go on the spacewalk just to pass a wooden torch or whatever kind of composite material it's made of back and forth to each other. They actually had to do some maintenance on the station. Okay. Um, but – once the other crew came back, they handed it to the Olympic officials. Now it's going to be used for the opening ceremonies in February. But of course, there's some gimmicky to this, but it's also one of those things where it's, hey, February Olympics, they're coming. Ray, Ray. Right. It does raise it's been awareness. In space. Yeah, it does raise awareness. Um, all right. Well, very good. So uh, this next button will either light the torch or it's incoming feedback. Oh, good. I didn't want to light the torch on the station. That'd be bad. So, yeah, we got a little uh, viewer feedback this week, don't we? Yes, we do. Michael Fallon, at Fallon M on Twitter. He said, you know, he pointed out to me that uh, two different stories about some new shark species that had been discovered. First up, you have the Carolina hammerhead. So, they've announced they've discovered a new species. It's kind of a rare shark, the Carolina hammerhead. (laughs) Now, it had kind of been long in the mystery of discovery because they're out you know, by looking at them, they're completely indistinguishable. So they're actually going through, and because this area was um, really good, they were looking at the, um, this is where they go to have their, their babies, and they kind of do that. So they're collecting samples for study. And throughout the whole, you know, looking at the genetic structure and signals in it, and they kind of said, hmm, there's some of these that are actually very different. So they went through and they said, all right, there's genetic evidence to show that there is a new species. Now, because they look exactly the same, there's no way to know how many of them do exist in the population or how many still exist in you know, the oceans or the world or anything. But Okay. Huh. Well, there you go. I didn't I never you never know what's in the ocean. Sounds kind of scary. Right. Thank you. The You're... next shark oh. was crazy. This is There's the two sharks. There was another shark species discovered. This one was a walking shark. Okay. This what? one. Okay. Walking. <laughs> oh, that's shark. the one I had the picture of. That was, that's the walking shark. Oh, okay. Oh, we also have video of it too. I'll pull yes, this up. Yes, you have to watch the video. If you're the, <laughs> it is crazy. It's like swimming along the bottom of, you know, the bottom of the uh, river so much, or the sea or whatever it is. Not so much swimming, more like strolling. 
Yes, it's strolling along the bottom. Now, they don't always have to rely on that walking movement. Um, a lot of times they're just kind of swimming over the bottom and they have their little, uh, you know, they're just kind of skimming the seafloor with their pectoral fins. Now, the, one of the video is literally like them using them like crawling over rocks and things like that. They're 70 centimeters, 27 inches long, completely harmless to humans. They hang out in coral ledges, which is where they, young sharks pretty much leave very sedentary lives. They just sit there chilling, being couch, well, set couch potatoes, coral potatoes, until they get to adulthood. Wow. Kind of almost looks like a little bit like a dog, like a dog walking around the bottom of the ocean. Yep, but if you're listening or anything like that, definitely go to the show notes, click on that video. Mm-hmm. It's too, it, it's a much see. Yeah, that is, that, is, that is definitely very funny. All right, well, guess what? We got a little spacecraft update. Lay it on me, Heather. What is our spacecraft update? Already, we've talked about it before, a couple weeks ago. India's Mars Orbiter Mission. Yeah. They call it MOM. Yeah, okay. It actually it successfully went into its initial Earth orbit, parked there on November 5th. Now, I may have talked about this before, but the rocket engines that they had, they're not powerful enough to send it to a direct flight to Mars. They didn't have the funding for that. So they used the, the smart the smarts and went into pencil and paper and computers and such and said, hey, what we could do is what they call six midnight maneuvers. So they'll do eight engine burns over se- several weeks. So essentially, it's, you put, it puts it into an elliptical orbit. And the burn kind of lifts that orbit a little bit higher. And then it uses the gravitation of the Earth to kind of whip around and go farther out each time. Right. And then finally, it'll get enough speed to leave the Earth's um, sphere of influence and start its uh, 10-month journey to Mars. They're thinking it'll probably be end of September 2014. So they're hoping for kind of that. Now, there was a small glitch on their fourth burn on uh, Monday, yesterday. So they wanted it to take it up to a specific height, but it engine briefly failed out mm. so the autopilot kicked in so they didn't quite get the height of orbit that they wanted but they did a supplemental burn today november the 12th and they actually able to get it into its proper orbit so oh, okay good it, everything's all good to go now uh, uh nasa has an or- orbital mission as well on november 18th blasting off and its mission is to study the martian atmosphere which is actually what the very similar to what the Indians, India's uh, orbiter is going to do as well. They're both sort of be studying the atmosphere, and they've kind of said, um, you know, that India's hoping to detect methane in the Martian atmosphere to kind of prove evidence of life, that kind of thing. So since they're both going to be discovering that, the mom science team, India, it still feels weird to say mom. Yeah. Uh, so they're going to work together with NASA, and they'll be able to kind of share data back and forth as much as they will and say, hey, you have that capability, you have that capability, let's work together in tandem and try to figure out some more details about what's going on here. That's good to hear. That is good to hear. All right. Well, while we're talking about probing Mars, let's do a little uh, curiosity And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. Receive on Mars. All right, Heather. So what's Curiosity up to? 
All right. Poor Curiosity had a an also glitch, an unexpected software reboot, which they call a warm reset on oh, the we, 7th. We had one of those today. <laughs> yes, we did. I've been having, so a, I've been having a few too. of those. Sorry. <laughs> yep. So during this communication pass, it was um, sending some engineering and science data to the orbiter for later downlinking to Earth. And kind of four and a half hours about some new after some new flight software had been temporarily loaded into the rover's memory, it kind of reset and crashed. Now so, you, didn't you tell us last week that they'd be doing this update? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I was talking about this. So <laughs> about four hours afterwards, it kind of went into a soft reboot, a uh, warm reboot, they call it. Yeah. So it's when the flight software says, hey, there's a problem. Hey, there's a problem. Reboot. So they'll reboot it into its initial state. Since the reset, the rover's just been kind of doing just operations and communications as expected. So it's nothing super scary. Everything's sort of back to to its nominal operating procedures. Yeah, they say it resets it back to its initial state. Now, I wonder what they mean by that exactly. Because that could mean the initial state at that current revision of the software, just all settings to default. Or it could mean initial state as as the software was when it landed on Mars. Right. I'm not sure they didn't make that completely Right, they don't. It's evident, kind of ambiguous. But I, I yeah. Would, yeah, but I kind of got the feeling that would be Mars landing, but I'm not sure. That's a pretty big leap because uh, they've done several updates, right? Yeah, so that's also what kind of gave me to believe, well, that would be a huge leap, so probably just the last state. That or is it, so, is it, could it also be shorthand for saying we switched to computer B, which is running on the initial software? I mean, you know, it could, it could be a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, they update one. They were... You know, update A, they, you know, wait till it's happy, then they move it over to B yeah, and wait yeah. till it's happy. So they kind of go back and forth. So that probably is uh, another part of what it might be. Maybe now, this need- is the first time that it's actually happened, and it's 16 months of cruising on Mars. So I thought they had one other little glitch where they where they had did jump over to the other computer. Yeah, they had, you know, they had something. Well, I think it's like a half step away from that. Okay. Where it's, they see a little something, and so they kick over. If this is sort of a different part of the yeah, program. It yeah, says okay. something is more, is not crazy more, wrong, but right. something a little, a step enough wrong. That this it's like, all right, serious, reboot. Though. Yeah. Reboot. All right, Heather, very good. Well, just, uh, I'm sure you'll update us next week on if you hear anything new. Oh, yes. And uh, while uh, we're up, why don't we uh, jump in the time machine? Okay. These shorter trips, sub 100 years, seem real smooth. Real smooth. This yeah. uh, this week, the time machine takes us to 41 years ago, November 16th, 1972. Heather, what happened this week in science? Skylab 3, carrying a crew of three astronauts, was launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida. They would be there on an 84-day mission, which actually ended up being the longest American space flight for almost two de- for over two decades, should I say. Really? So, yeah, it wasn't broken until uh, 2002, 2003. So, they, you know, this is the one where they had walking treadmills. They had an on-station stationary bike to kind of uh, uh, fight against the whole, you know, degradation of bones and muscle loss in space with microgravity. So, they had four space flights during that whole time. One on uh, Christmas Day, actually. To observe a comet, Coatech. Wow. I think. So, 1,214 orbits later, they came back to Earth, splashing down on the February 8th of 1974. 
How about that, Heather? That is really cool. That's a good bit of history, and uh, Heather has links with uh, all kinds of info in the show notes. All right, well, let me recalibrate this by 2,000 and uh, look up into the sky this week. That's right. On November 15th, Friday, November 15th, you look after dark, you look in the uh, high in the west to southwest, you might see a bright star that's Vega. Now, the bright star above it is Deneb. And there's a dimmer to the lower left of those called Altair. And the reason I point these out is what they call this is the Summer Triangle. So it's uh, Vega down below, Deneb on top, and Altair off to the side. As far as planets go this week, uh, Venus around dusk, looking the southwest, uh, about an hour or two after dark, you'll be able to see it. Mars... About 1 to 2 a.m. local time, because it wants me to stay up really late. <laughs> High in the southeastern sky, still moving east, so that's against the actual background stars if you're going to be watching it for a little while. And it's moving farther and farther away from uh, to lower left now from Regulus, which is I've been talking about for weeks. About It's the blue star, and when Mars and it Regulus were together, it kind of ended up being a nice um, red and blue Comparison there. Mm. And Jupiter, another possible local favorite. hey 9 p.m. local time. You're going to see it rising in the east to northeast with the stars of um, Castor and Pollux to its left of the two uh, main stars of the constellation uh, Gemini. All right. Well, all of this is outlined in the show notes. Specifically, if you're looking for the uh, stuff up in the sky when you notice something, just scroll down to the bottom of the side by show notes. You'll see it posted right there. You can also contact the show by going to jupiterbroadcasting.com and clicking that contact link. You could also join us live over at jblive.tv on a Tuesday. You can hang out in our chat room and ask Heather questions as we go and join us during the pre and post show. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. Don't forget, you can also subscribe in iTunes and rate us and comment. That helps other people find the show, and we always appreciate that, too. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. 